Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday, I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack, it's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great writers for ATQ, Slurms Matt Court. How you doing? I'm well, sir, yourself. Not bad. Uh, so, uh, Eugene, Oregon, uh, hosted the World Athletics Championships at Hayward Field, uh, one of many elite premier uh, athletics events. This one is sort of like the Olympics, but it's not the Olympics. Um uh, it was a hell of a competition. Um, uh, the United States did uh, very well. Um, and uh, the Ducks were represented, not just on the U.S. team, but for countries around the world. Um, you wrote a pretty comprehensive article about uh, how this competition went. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. It's up on Addicted to Quack right now. Um, what are your personal uh, takeaways from the event? Yeah, th- uh, thanks very much for the compliment. I-, I was really impressed by it because it is run in a similar fashion to what the Olympics are like, where you've got athletes from all over the world coming to your venue, and they have all the basically all the track and field events, at least, uh, if if not the the greater Olympic uh, events that they have during the, the actual Summer Olympics. But you have world-class athletes showing up in your town to compete for world championships. And I thought the way it was organized, things generally speaking, and we'll, we'll get into some of the glitches uh, in, in a minute or two, but I thought generally speaking, the thing went off without a hitch. And you can imagine the logistical challenges that bringing in hundreds of athletes from all over the world and thousands of spectators from all over the world to Eugene to run this massive track meet, uh, you know, over basically 10 days where every day something important is happening. You've got finals happening or you've got key heats or key semifinals happening. You frequently have several events as you do at any any track meet that you attend you've got several important events going on all at the same time and having the crowd there to focus on them and uh, especially in Eugene where you know your base crowd is going to be knowledgeable about track and field so they're going to know when to cheer they're going to know when to sit back and wait for something to happen I thought the whole thing put Eugene and Oregon and track and field, frankly, in a fantastic light 
by and large, with a couple of glitches, which we can talk about. Um, yeah, this is the first time I believe the um, the the worlds have been to the United States, and you yes. know, where else are you going to go? I mean, it's a testament to the place that um, Eugene and the University of Oregon hold in the, you know, in the the world of track and field. That like, yeah, the first time you hold you know an Olympic caliber event in the United States, you do it in Eugene. Where the hell else are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, for an Olympic caliber event, you know, at the Olympics, they do things like build the Olympic village, right? Like they have, you know, tons of dedicated security. They reroute traffic. They, you know, they're, you know, the logistical challenges for the Olympics are legendary to the extent that like several cities who you might think would want to host have like turned it down because they're like, we don't want those nightmares. Now, track and field is not the entirety, you know, of the Olympics, of course, but like it is of that, you know, caliber. And, you know, you don't get to do any of that because Eugene's a college town and they just sort of had to take it in stride in terms of, you know, the local hotels and hospitality and, you know, traffic control, security, et cetera. Like, uh, you know, this is an athletics uh, website and podcast and not a logistics and policing one. Uh, So we won't talk about this for too long, but like, you know, uh, in there was a potential for an event of this nature to be a catastrophe. And instead it was the opposite, you know, it highlighted Eugene and the university of Oregon and got a lot of press. I mean, it was coverage in the New York times. There's an article in the New York times uh, this week. That's, you know, that's essentially all about why is the world track and field championships in Eugene, Oregon, and Mm -hmm. discusses the history of the university of Oregon and Steve Prefontaine and, and Bill Bowerman and, and, you know, all these, you know, it's, you know, when else, when else is this, you know, tiny little college bird going to get covered in the the New York times? It's going to be covered for that. Not very often. And, And it's also, the other thing is it's a tribute to the people that looked at Hayward field 10 years ago or whenever they started and said, Hey, we need to work on a, a remodeling and upgrading of Hayward Field if we want to host international track and field meets. And they looked at it and they clearly put together a venue that works perhaps ideally for this kind of a large international meet. And the, the Hayward Field has now hosted three major track meets in as many months. And Every, everything has worked wonderfully. You haven't heard one word about. Yeah, right. Nobody. Uh, there are no stories about the toilets or, leaking. Yeah, exactly. No, you know. Exactly. And so it's a. I think it's a real tribute to the university and the planning that went into putting that facility into the 21st century and and opens up perhaps a, a new greater phase of Tracktown USA for the University of Oregon and Eugene. Well, it's definitely the case, you know, now we've transitioned from an athletics to a logistics to a construction podcast, but uh, <laughs> it does highlight, you know, Oregon has been in a con- real construction craze, you know, for the last mm-hmm. 20 years. Yeah. And y- you'd be hard pressed to find a building that, you know, doesn't work, you know, that, right. that you know, that there are problems, you know, I like the, they built a, an academic support center a couple of years ago, you know, where with like, you know, if you ever walk past it, this glass cube, you know, right there on on the corner. And, uh, you know, I've I've 
I've gone inside it and it's it's this palace, you know, like all these buildings are palaces. Right. And, you know, they don't cut corners. Uh, You know, they 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 highlight the university. And like this is the relationship of athletics at the highest level to an institution of higher higher learning is that, you know, their advertisement for your campus and it's important to get it right. And this is one of the many areas in which Oregon fans can be um, reassured and proud that, hey, their university got it right. Um, yeah, and, and there's a, does so. to a large degree, and I, I think this is obvious in football, maybe perhaps less obvious in some other sports, but there's a self-stoking cycle that happens. And one of the reasons that, that Oregon went after the facilities building phase that it did uh, 25 or 30 years ago is because they saw when, when we visit, uh, you know, a, a Midwestern college, Ohio State or Michigan, or we visit a a Southeastern Conference school to play football, their facilities are just so much nicer and so much more modern and better than ours are. And so therefore, they're getting recruits that we might have a shot at, but because our facilities aren't quite up to snuff, they might go to a different school. And I think that has really helped the school. Again, when, when you're in Eugene, Oregon, recruiting athletes for any sport, I'm not sure it matters which one, you you want to get rid of as many objections to that high school student or that the current college athlete coming to the university as you can. And one of the, thing, the things you can do is present to them facilities that are world-class or as close to world-class as you can get. And, and they've done this uh, across the board with men's and women's sports in many, many instances. You look baseball and softball, basketball, certainly, volleyball obviously plays um, in Matt Court as well. And, uh, and with all the tremendous football facilities that have been put in, they've really done uh, a fantastic job of making it a, everything a world-class experience on the athletic side. And as you note, they're not skimping on the academic side of things at the same time. And it's gratifying, I think, uh, you know, as, as sports fans who may care about uh, academics as well, to see the university put some of that effort, that same level of effort into some of the academic yeah. facilities. Well. No, you know, famously, you know, Oregon is one of the few institutions that does not, you know, the, the athletic side does not take money from the academic side or, or the extent that they do, it's, you know, minor, you know, it's token amount, Um, you know, because essentially the athletic side is self-sustaining and, you know, what you said about, you know, eliminate any reason for a recruit not to pick your school. Like it works the other way too. You know, we have not talked much on this podcast or on this website um, about, you know, potential conference realignment where Oregon may wind up in a couple of years, but like, all of those things about, you know, making yourself a world-class institution and eliminating any sort of embarrassing, you know, facilities stuff, uh, you know, that stuff is relevant to, you know, uh, to, to, uh, to, to the conference realignment stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. Oregon and Washington state are not so different, right? Like they're fundamentals, they're, you know, structural stuff. They're both in, you know, tiny little towns and kind of the middle of nowhere, um, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of athletic success, you know, up until, you know, pretty recently. But then, you know, some point in the mid 90s, their paths diverge 
And the major way that their paths diverge is that Oregon seriously invests in itself as an academic institution and as a uh, as an athletic institution with world class facilities like Hayward Field. You know, that's just the, the end point of or, or, or the most recent of them. But, that you know, it's not they're done. Um, and, and yeah, like, you know, can you imagine the Big Ten, you know, licking its chops at getting wazoo, you know, no. Hard yeah. for me to imagine. Can you imagine the Big Ten licking its chops at getting Oregon? A little easier. You know, what the hell's the difference between Oregon and Wazoo? Uh, this, Hayward Field. And, yeah. the, and the fact that Oregon hosts the World Athletic Championships and Pullman hosts, you know, Lentil Farmers or whatever. Right. Um, sorry to any Cougs fans. I, I enjoy your lentils and your Cougar gold, and I like a, a Natty Light as much as anybody else. Um, let's talk about some of the Ducks who competed in the World Athletics Championships. Um, there were quite a few of them. There were. Yeah, there were 15 that were originally scheduled to compete. A couple of those were alternates or, or ended up not competing. Uh, so I think we had 13, uh, 12 or 13 ducks that actually competed in events. And, and we have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of excellent performances. Um, in particular, I think I need to point out Jenna Prandini, mm-hmm. uh, who is, that was the only gold medalist, uh, who was an Oregon grad or, uh, you know, recent, uh, participant at the university. She was on the four by 100, uh, relay team for the women and the U S uh, went on to take the gold in in that uh, yeah the, race. the photo you selected uh, of those four in the relay um, for the the header of the article was just a fantastic photo yeah they were they were, pretty jacked, right the they were pretty jacked I thought <laughs> yeah like, yeah buddy um, yeah, yeah and no, they really... those are those are athletes man like and yeah. with the American flags and Hayward Field in the background is just like this is a photo yeah. Yeah, they uh, they really uh, ran well, and and if anybody that follows even track and field even tangentially, like at Olympics time, knows that one of the problems you have is in relays is the passing of the baton. It's the one thing that screws up teams more than anything else in in uh, relay sports and track. And and they did a fantastic job because you can obviously if you can get that down, you can save yourself a ton of time even against the field or against yourself to, to better your own time. And they had no problems uh, passing the baton. The men's team had some problems uh, passing mm-hmm. the baton and ended up not winning their race, uh, their final, because of that. Um, but Prandini also ran the 200. She didn't do quite as well there. She almost qualified for the final. She was like three hundredths of a second away uh, from qualifying on time in, in the women's uh 200 meters. So she really did a fantastic job. And then just, you know, the other um, important duck uh, was Devin Allen that, that had like high visibility. They're all important, but like, well, they're all important, but I mean, he's, he, he's the one that would have, you know, my view would have meddled at least if not won the gold medal in his race, had he not been disqualified uh, for uh, starting too early. And it's a very, this is an interesting thing because the, International track has really struggled with how to figure out what to do about false starts. They've had rules in the past where there was one free false start for the field, and then the next person to false start was disqualified, which you can imagine uh, doesn't really work very well. Well, now there's gamesmanship potential. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, God, this other person false started too. It just was the first one instead of the mm-hmm. second one. I'm out and they're in. That's, you know, that isn't fair. 
So now they're using a, a basically a, a reaction time where if you react faster than a tenth of a second after the gun has been fired, uh, then you're, you've had a false start and you're disqualified. And this is what happened to Devin Allen. I believe his reaction time was nine one-hundredths of a second um, instead of a tenth of a second. Yeah, basically it's, he was a thousandth of a second off. Yeah. Uh, two uh, yeah. And, and, like, and so here's, you know, my take on it kind of in the article and generally is we're talking about his reaction time after the gun has been fired, not before. He's not leaving the blocks yeah. before the starter gun has gone off. Right. Like it's the idea after. of the the idea of the tenth of a second is that like that is the limit of human reaction times. Right. And that if you are moving before a tenth of a second, that means that you actually decide you got lucky and you decided to go before that you actually heard the pistol. Right. And right. so you shouldn't be rewarded for that. But like who the hell is to say a tenth of a second is the, you know, limit of human? Like, maybe Devin yeah. Allen is just faster than you, you know? Like, how did a tenth of a second, like, is that written in the code of the human yeah. genome? Like, I don't know. You know, at one time, it was impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. Right, exactly. Like, maybe right. Devin Allen's just faster than you are. And like, that, that I, one, one time I heard somebody say, you know, if you could train yourself to start the race when you heard, when you heard the gun fire rather than waiting until the sound stopped to, to start your race mm -hmm. you'd be the fastest runner in the world because you'd be you know however a tenth of a second or whatever it is ahead of everybody else and that to me that's kind of what Devin Allen has either figured out uh, or as you mentioned he's timing it somehow between when when they say they say set and the gun fires but in any event uh, international track again clearly is going to have to relook at their false start. Yeah, I mean this just try to figure something so much out. controversy. Yeah, you know, and unnecessarily. Yeah, completely, completely yeah, like Devin Allen doesn't look like the villain here. You know, no, not not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. Um, well, there were a bunch of other ducks who competed. We, we're not going to recapitulate all of them on this podcast. You should read Slurm's article. Like I said, it's very good and, and comprehensive. Um, the 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 thing that really caught my eye uh, uh, the, the, that we haven't talked about yet is how many of Oregon's athletes were competing for nations that weren't the United States, right? You know, right. Kevin Nelson competed for Jamaica and Shauna Grebo for, for France and uh, Julian Weir for Canada, Jessica Hull for Australia, Tristan James for Dominica, the Dominican Republic. Um, and uh, Emmanuel Himeje, um, um, who I believe is Eritrean extraction. I, I forget. But anyway, he competes for Italy. Um, the uh, uh, Yeah, you know, it's like about half of the Ducks right. were, were, you know, because and I sort of I want to tie that back to what we were talking about earlier, because Oregon's international institution, you know, like it, this isn't, you know, the the best damn runner from Beaverton High School, you know, although <laughs> right. although maybe the best damn runner from Beaverton High School could compete for the Ducks, but like it's you know Oregon, you know its track and field program is you know of a uh, clout, and Eugene is an attractive enough location that people who are world class athletes, like literally world class athletes, and represent their nation at you know the Olympics and other world you know competitions are like yeah, and I'm going to go to college in Eugene, right. Uh, because and that's, that, you know, with a new with a new track uh, and, and field coaching staff, or at least a new head track and field coach coming in, uh, who knows, knows these athletes, 
uh, international athletes because of his work at, with the Bowerman Track Club. It's, it should be obvious that it's critical to be able to find athletes who are not based in Oregon, not based in the West, not based in the United States, to come and compete for the university. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little football. All right, so uh, this week uh, uh, I am going to be publishing, uh, imagine the air quotes, listener, uh, a <laughs> compilation of my entire Duck Dive series uh, of the entire Pac-12. As it stands today uh, for the you know all the teams that are going to be on Oregon schedule, plus a couple of teams that aren't. Uh, uh, the, the, Oregon is not scheduled to play USC or Arizona State, but I preview them anyway for thoroughness. And hell, they could see them in the in the Pac-12 title game. Um, maybe not ASU. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I uh, last week I, I talked because I wrapped it up and I uh, I wrote about Oregon and it sort of naturally compared Oregon to a bunch of other teams. But like we didn't really talk much about you know some of the surprises or you know other things about other teams. I get pretty comprehensive about them and i figured we could take a little bit of time and you know talk about interesting news and notes um from you know from this series you know i i risk of patting myself on the back i, I don't think anybody gets more comprehensive than i do you know in this pac-12 series so like all right slurms let, let's yeah you know, I, I think honestly my brain my view is most of the questions anybody would have are probably answered if they just read the articles <laughs> for comprehension. Um, so one of the things that I find interesting about your articles is uh, you, you talk in almost every one of them, and perhaps in every one of them, especially this time of year, uh, about the spring games that the schools hold. You look at, you watch them, or you look at the video after the fact and to determine players and who's got skills and who maybe doesn't. And I was wondering if you have a sense of how, what the coaching staffs might be looking for to come out of those spring games. Nothing. Um, the coaching staff, they're, they're just throwing them out there. So I was, that's the thing. I was wondering if, you know, let's say you've got a guy who's a clear one. Okay. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's a beast. He's going to be your starting defensive end. Do you sit him? Do you play him with the twos or threes so you can give a, a somebody who's right behind him in the mix some, some time with the ones? Is there any strategy going on, or is it just we got a list and we're throwing these guys out there? There appears to be a convention. I I kept track of this because I was, you know, at one point I was I was sitting there. Uh, this years ago, I tried to figure this out because I was worried that like maybe there's no correlation. Maybe the the ones and twos that they claim that they're putting out there in the spring game is completely unrelated to you know who's actually leading in the race to get the job as first stringer, second stringer, etc. Um, and so I kept track of that. Um, I did this project years ago, and what I found was like no, actually the spring game ones are very predictive across multiple coaching staffs. You know, not just the, at the the same school but like across coaching staffs the spring mm -hmm. games actually are extremely predictive of what the two deep is going to be with the exception of course that you don't know about you know potential injuries that might happen or you know guys who show up on on campus in the fall um 
you know, fall camp battles uh, or guys who are being held out in the spring game for injuries. But like basically, you know, with those sort of caveats aside, the guys who are playing with the ones in the spring game, generally speaking, you know, are going to be your first stringers, you know, come the, the opening game of, of fall. Um, they've the the it's boy it's really like athletic talent just speaks for itself it's why there's no substitute for film study when you turn it on you're just like that guy is faster that dude hits harder that dude has more zip on his ball you know that dude you know uh, can block that dude can tackle and you know these guys uh, uh oh if that guy has to be the starter then they're in trouble um you know that's the value more than anything else the spring game and and the spring game itself is not really a competition. The coaches all know it. And the reason why I say that, like, the athleticism speaks for itself is it's not like that's practice 15. Like, the coaches have that f- sussed out by, like, practice three. You know, like yeah. they, you know, the spring game is just a ratification of what, um, you know, folks already know about, you know, uh, you know, about where their bodies are at. But, you know, like, obviously, like, 247 and other scouting services give athletic, you know, gr- reports on these kids and, the, you know, what their dimensions are and what they project their talent to be. But, like, that's a high school kid and there's, a, you know, their bodies aren't done developing, um, you know the the kid by the time that they're you know a junior in college compared to when they were a junior in high school like that's a pretty significant amount of growing you know in a a young man's life um right so like you know it's not it doesn't completely track you know like the 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 0.89s are not exactly always ahead of the 0.86s and and so forth but like you know but between the spring and the fall there's there's no real changes, you know, like the, the, the athletes who are capable of playing at the power five level, you know, make themselves known. And it's pretty obvious to watch them. Do you, uh, how, how are you feeling about, um, the recruiting? There's been a ton of recruiting news. It seems like just in recent, uh, days and, and certainly weeks, for Oregon, and the, the staff seems to be just picking right up where uh, the, you know the previous staff left off as far as recruiting high-end kids. Um, do you do you expect are, in in the current class that's you know, come in or will come in for the fall? Do you expect anybody to get significant playing time? Oh, uh, true freshman. Um, yeah. Well, well, I thought. Uh, the I class of 23 won't be here till the class of right. till 2023. Yeah, so, you know, right. um, but in terms of like the class of 2022, I, I take your, I understand your, your question now that the, like, because that, that's potentially every, anytime there's a coaching transition, it's potentially fraught, you know, how the, uh, you know, how the transition is going to, you know, in terms of the, the, the how, how are they going to be able to retain the, the kids in the transitional right. class, which is the 2022 class. So in terms of, uh, you know, true freshmen from the 2022 class, let me I'm, I'm reviewing my list now uh, for Oregon. Um, I mean, there are a number of transfers. I You're, you're probably excluding those. Um, yeah. Doubt it. Yeah. You know, maybe a couple as backups, uh, but I don't think that's really your question. Um, I would just wonder the only, if there's an impact player. The only position where I think there's um, a chance of serious true freshman 
playing time is at cornerback, where I think Jaleel Florence, one of the two four-star Jaleels um, uh, from San Diego, but but Florence enrolled in the spring. Tucker's not going to arrive until fall. Um, uh, Florence was playing in the spring game, um, and he didn't look bad, and the position is thin enough that he might get some real playing time. Every other position for Oregon, like – I guess I'll put it this way. Having done this entire series, I think Oregon has a number of true freshmen who would be pressed into service as starters or, you know, heavily in the rotation at most other Pac-12 schools because of the nature of their talent voids. But Oregon enjoys a position, you know, due to good recruiting for the last, you know, four cycles um, where that's really not the case for, you know, like they're, you know, so for example, uh, Devin Jackson and Harrison Taggart are inside linebackers um, who both enrolled early in the spring. They're both four stars. Uh, I saw them in the spring game and they look good that, you know, they're, you know, they look like they're pack five, pack power five caliber players. And I think at any other school in the pack 12, just about any other school, you know, they would probably be getting serious playing time, but they walk into Oregon's ILB room. You know, they're not displacing as true freshmen, Noah Sewell and Justin Flo and, you know, Jackson LaDuke and Jeffrey Boss and Keith Brown. Um, like, like, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen, guys. Um, you know, you're going to redshirt this year, you know, as as well you should. Like, that's how the big boy programs do, you know, like. Like, you know, I can tell you from from having done all this study on, you know, Ohio State and in Georgia and and, uh, and, you know, all the, you know, big boy programs that I've been studying in recent years, Oklahoma, you know, like, yeah, that's their structure. You know, like you get four stars, but there's a bunch of four stars ahead of them. So they redshirt, which is like, yeah, that's what you want. Like, sure. And, and like that wasn't exactly like, uh, uh, you know. Mario Cristobal followed up Willie Taggart and, um, and Mark Helfrich and Mario Cristobal would recruit dudes who as true freshmen were better than the guys that he inherited from the previous right. staffs. And so in Mario Cristobal, I think to his credit, uh, reasonable people can disagree on that, but uh, you know, it's my opinion that like, that's the right way to do it you put your best dude on the field and it doesn't matter whether, you know, the sort of like, well, he's earned his dues or, you know, we're rewarding his loyalty to the program. Like, nah, I'm sorry. That doesn't, that doesn't fly with me. You know, you put your best dude on the field. Now the, Dan Lanning is not walking into the same situation that Mario Cristobal walked into. Dan Lanning is walking into a situation where he can recruit four-star true freshmen and redshirt them um, because they're, at least at this moment in their development, not the best available player. Um, it's a good, good position to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you? Um, so are the changes or this, the new, the new uh, again in air quotes, defense that Oregon's going to be implementing. Um, is, it, is it different enough from what they've been playing and the players that they have that they could have some adaptation issues at mm. a position or two? Or are they think... similar enough that it's not going to then the kids are athletic enough and smart enough that they'll just adapt to it? Yeah, the the latter. They're they're playing a it, it, the, Dan Laney's defense is essentially a three down, two ILB, five defensive back you know system. That's what Oregon has been using since um, uh, uh, since 
Jim Levitt and uh, and Andy Avalos and Tim DeRude are all using that. You know, are their defenses a little different? Yes, but they're structurally. You know, they use those same things, and so they're the, the, these jobs all map onto the new. You know the. You don't have to, you know, wonder about like, oh, how do you convert that guy into a four? I he was supposed to be a four. Like, how do you convert that guy into an inside linebacker? Like, he was supposed to be an inside linebacker. Like, um, whereas, you know, with with a bunch of other programs in the Pac-12, you know, they, you know, they they go back and forth. You know, Arizona is changing its. It will now have under, undergone four different three to four to three to four, you know, down <laughs> down lineman fronts, yeah. you know, in, in, in as many years. You know, uh, Colorado is sort of messing around with a bunch of different things. Although I think that Colorado basically has figured out that that like their um, defensive coordinator, uh, uh, Chris Wilson. Um, I think he wants to run a four three, but he knows that he didn't inherit the right talent for it, and so wisely is just going to run, you know, the, the right, you know, defense, you know, instead of what he wants to do. Uh, so, you know, good for him, but that's like the temptation was there. You could see it, um, you know, other places like, for example, uh, Oregon state and Stanford, you know, they are structured to run a three down front. They recruited, you know, the, the other, you know, linemen that they have to be in a three down front, but then they don't have nose tackles for, you know, variety of reasons that are explored in the articles. But like the upshot of that is that like they effectively wind up playing a two down front, um, because, because they don't have the third man, you know, they don't have the dude in the middle. And, and like, you know, these, like I said, are, they're explored in the article, but it's sort of like, you know, these guys like Oregon state fired its defensive coordinator last year. And I'm not here to like, um, defend Tim Tibisar's honor or anything. He was the defensive coordinator who got fired and I'm not here to tear down Trent Bray. He was the inside linebacker coach who got promoted, um, to, to be the new defensive coordinator. But I do think that like, you can't like that. That was a that was a failure of recruiting and retention and to some extent luck. Like that defense stunk because all of their nose tackles transferred out, and yeah. um, and they didn't have anybody else ready to go. Um, they may now like they sort of look like they're getting some dudes back from from injury, and so that they may be you know okay at that position going forward. But like you know they were essentially sort of like forced into a scheme change that they couldn't you know operate because they didn't have the personnel for it. This is one of the dangers of being a you know program that recruits like Oregon State does. Stanford, I don't know what their excuse is. Uh, you know they've got I'm not kidding about this three scholarship defensive linemen. Like it's just it's it's nuts to to the extent that they have officially declared that they are making a scheme change to a four down front. It is not, they're lying about it. It's a two down front um, with, with OLBs who are not edge players. They're too light for it. They are not going to be able to play the, you know, the, the appropriate, what you would expect out of an end in a four down front. It's effectively going to be a two, four, five, but guess what? Their defensive linemen are not two down, you know, guys, you know, they're not the like enormous dudes. Like Washington under Pete Kukowski ran a two four five, and look at the dudes that they recruited. They recruited enormous dudes like Greg Gaines and Tuli Latuli and Gusanoa, and the other linemen they would get with guys like Levi Unzariki, who'd be like you know inside interior pass rushers and disruptive dudes. Like Washington, you know, for a couple of years anyway, recruited appropriately for a two down front. Stanford hasn't been recruiting for a two down front. They definitely haven't been recruiting for a four down front. They've been recruiting for a three down front, but then they forgot to recruit 
anybody and everybody left like uh you know so you know those are schools ucla is undergoing a scheme change to a four down front they don't have the personnel for it um i don't understand why they made the hire that they did that was absolutely you know flipping bonkers um USC is going from Todd Orlando's defense to Alex Grinch's defense. They're uh, similar enough, I guess. They sh- they sh- their problems won't stem from that uh, scheme change. Uh, Utah hasn't changed schemes in a decade. Uh, Washington is undergoing sort of a scheme change. Uh, we'll see how that works out. They definitely don't have uh, the, the exactly the right type of guys there. Um, let's see. Wazoo is obviously sticking with Jake Dickert's scheme. Actually, that I actually think Jake Dickert... Uh, the way that he executed the scheme change from um, the craziness with Tracy Clay's uh, and his departure at the end of Mike Leach's tenure to what Jake Dickert wanted to do. I wouldn't have thought a four down front would work with the speed defense, but it actually does. And Jake Dickert should get all the credit for having smoothly executed that transition. And I think it's what won him the job. Um, that Nick Rolovich being a crazy COVID truther. Um, so, you know, hats off to him. Uh, um, I think I sort of ran through everybody there. Uh, the, like, so, you know, there are, to, to recapitulate, there are schools that are going through scheme changes that do not have the appropriate, you know, per- personnel for it, and they're going to encounter problems. There are teams that are not undergoing scheme changes, and so therefore they're going to continue to be, you know, about what you expect. And then there are teams like Oregon who are technically undergoing scheme changes, but not really. And so they should be fine. And given that they've recruited very well and they're very deep and well experienced, that the answer at long last year question is no, there shouldn't be any problems in that regard. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> is the, uh, so, so the, re- the reason we've talked a little bit about, I think this about this on previous podcasts about why you would make a choice to switch to a defensive alignment for which you don't have the personnel available to be successful. And I think the conclusion we came to is that that's what the coaching staff is capable of coaching. Uh, And you can tell that you have a higher quality coaching staff if they can coach a defense that fits the personnel that they have. If they come into a situation like the ones you're talking about, where you, in some cases you've got a new coordinator who's coming into a school, and others you have somebody that's being promoted and perhaps being asked to make a change in a, in the defensive scheme. So it, it really comes down to um, you're, you're doing what you know at some of these schools as opposed to doing what might work best, although I suppose in some of these cases it wouldn't matter you don't have the personnel to play any scheme. Um, <laughs> you know, that's our friends, our friends up the road there are probably uh, both of our friends up the road, um, up the road from Eugene and up the road from, uh, from Portland probably are in that ballpark. Uh, yeah. The, you know, at, at some point your talent just sort of betrays you. That's true. Um, I don't really think, well, no, that's not true. I was going to say, I don't think Washington's talent has betrayed them. But then I remember that their cornerback situation is just like, I mean, it's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing what happened to their cornerback room. They they went from uh, a ton of blue chip NFL first round cornerbacks to, I'm not joking about this, they're probably going to play two walk-ons at <laughs> cornerback, you know, this year. It, it's like the talent 
uh, vacuum that happened in Seattle this uh, this offseason and the offseason prior. The, well, the Jimmy Lake years. And Jimmy Lake was their DB's coach. Like, that's right. the thing that's so, like, mind-blowing about the situation. Like, like if this were – last week, I, uh, you know, when, when discussing Cam McCormick's potential comeback, I said, like, you would throw your – if this were a movie, you'd throw your popcorn at the screen because it's like, yeah. oh, this is too corny. Like, <laughs> if, if this were a movie – and and you said okay so the plot of this movie is that we promoted a db coach to the to be the head coach and then he destroyed their db's room everybody like that doesn't make any sense you got to rewrite that script man no one's going to buy that like but like here we are in reality where that happened you know like right. it, it's so it, it's insane um you know, it extends beyond the defense too. Like this, this happens on the offense. So, so I was just praising Chris Wilson at Colorado for, for, I think, you know, being sensible about what defensive scheme he's going to run given, you know, what, what talent he's got. Uh, I don't think the same can be said for Colorado on the offensive side of the ball where Carl Durrell probably wisely fired his, you know, offensive coordinator because um, their offense was terrible. I mean, like world historically terrible. It was one of the worst offenses in the history of college football not just last year but like the the scope of of advanced stats being collected um uh but then they he replaced him with Mark Sanford Jr., who was Minnesota's coach or Minnesota's coordinator. And and like anybody, even like casual college football fans could tell you the, the biggest problem with Colorado's offense last year was their offensive line just stunk, stunk to high heaven. Mm-hmm. And so what does Darrell do? He hires mark sanford jr who's running like jumbo said like 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 oregon fans should probably be passingly familiar with what minnesota's offense looks like because they must have all watched the minnesota versus ohio state game that was immediately prior to the oregon versus ohio state game i mean no i know i did i wrote a whole article about it you know um but like i'm sure that a lot of oregon fans watched that game or maybe they watched the minnesota versus colorado game out of like uh pac-12 solidarity although they probably turned off that game after about uh, uh, 20 minutes because Minnesota was absolutely destroying Colorado. So, like, that must be the reason why Carl Durrell is just like, oh, this offense is the one that I want. So, like, so so uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 the, the Minnesota coach whose name is escaping right now. Um, uh, uh, he used to be a wide receiver for Western Michigan. All right, or not Western Michigan. It was some Mac team. Ah, uh, whatever. Uh, anyway, he fired Mark Sanford because his, his offense sucked. Um, and, and like, it was this jumbo, you know, like six offensive linemen, you know, power running. Oregon got the bet, you know, the, the, got Marquise Irving out of that. You know, he was the, their, their running back who played the most games for them and like extremely sturdy, right? Like he, he carried the ball 133 times from Minnesota's power rushing offense. That was like three yards in a cloud of dust. Um, this is just like, this is, I, I like in my article about Colorado, I, I finished I, the last line of the uh, offensive section of that article was like, I fear for the safety of this team. They do not mm-hmm. have adequate offensive line personnel really to your point to run any offense, but definitely not this offense. Like this is yeah. 180 degrees, the opposite of the offense that you want to run. Why would you get, the, you know, so what do I do when I turn on the Colorado spring game? What do, do I see someone who's like had the, 
you know, am I watching somebody who's had the light bulb go on and, and they're like, Oh, I can't run this. I need to figure out, you know, better things to do. I better go to a bunch of coaching clinics and learn how to run a different offense. Cause we're going to get creamed. If I try to run Minnesota's offense at this, you know, institution with this personnel, is that what I see slurms? Do, do you think that's no, what I saw? I think it's very unlikely. No, I did not. I saw Mark Sanford running Mark Sanford's offense. And like, look, I, I've seen Mark Sanford run good versions of that offense. He was he coached Notre Dame and at Boise and at Minnesota. And they're like, if you've got the personnel for it, there's a reason why, even though that offense is like starting to get kind of long in the tooth and, and some people think it's outdated, there's a reason why a bunch of coaches run it. Because if you have the right personnel for it, that is a dominating offense where you can just suffocate your opponent. Um you know, uh, like in many ways, football, football is a very complex game, but it can be cut through like the Gordian knot at times, you know, and one of the strategies to cut through the complexity of college football is if you just have like six offensive linemen who are enormous human beings and you can run the ball 50 times a game and get four yards of carry and you can prevent the opponent from ever touching the football, except for when you have to give it to them on one kickoff, uh, you can win games. I mean, that's basically how Navy wins wins games uh and right. army and and, and uh, you know other teams um like it's a it's a viable offense if you have the personnel for it but if there's one team in the pac 12 that has you know like i would be hard pressed to find a, a any other team in the pac 12 that is in a worse position maybe arizona that's in a worse position to run that offense than colorado why the hell are they going with that well these are the things that I encounter when I write profiles of every Pac-12 team. This is why, you know, ultimately I, I tend to think that the Pac-12 is in trouble, you know, not to touch too much on the big picture stuff, but like, it's because they keep doing stuff like this. This is like right. every time when I write one of these articles, just like, what are you thinking, dude? Like, I, you know, I, I write these articles for beer money and I could run your program better than you. Like, <laughs> what's, you know, why are you being paid all this money? Like, yeah. yeah. You find it up and down the pack. Hold, man. All right. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about my next project, which is Georgia's uh, football team. All right, so putting the Pac-12 behind us, at least for a moment, uh, the uh, the SEC is taking over the, the Pac-12 with Dan Lanning uh, and Tosh Lupoy um, coming from Georgia and Alabama, respectively, to uh, run Oregon's uh, defense. Um, I will, uh, since Oregon's uh, opener is also coincidentally, uh, you know, the Georgia Bulldogs, I'll, I'm going to write a separate article later in the offseason in which I discuss the actual makeup of the Georgia football team, you know, like who is, who are the returners? What are the schemes? Who have they replaced their coaches with, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for right now, the article that I'm going to be, you know, writing uh, the week after next is about like the structure of the mint front. Um, and so, you know, it's like the, the schematic and philosophical sort of stuff. Um, but I'm reviewing Georgia's film in order to get it. So uh, that is why we're talking about Georgia football right now. Indeed, they uh, they they provide a test, I would say, and I'm, I'll be very interested to see if Oregon implements basically the same defense that Lanning was running at Georgia with a different defensive coordinator, um, and what changes might be needed due to personnel, if there are any, uh, in Oregon's scheme going forward, and how the kids adapt to whatever the changes might be. 
uh, going forward into the fall. I I think that the, I can't be certain about that. I am uh, very curious about those questions, too. If I had to make a guess right now, um, and my guess is also infused with my hope because I, I hope this is the case. Uh, I think the answer is no, not really. I don't think there are going to be many changes. I think they do have the appropriate personnel to run the defense that, um, that, that looks like what Georgia was running last year um, and, and what T- Tosh Lapoy was running when he was the um, coordinator at Alabama in 2018. They're, they're basically they're, they're They come off the same system. Essentially the, 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 the mint front is, as they call it, is an adaptation of um, the tight front, uh, which you know was popularized by guys like Dave Aranda and Todd Orlando, um, and, and and made its way to Tim DeRuder's defense. He, at some point, when he was the Fresno State coach, which is where he was at before Cal hired him um, in 2017, uh, he made the transition from being a 505 guy, meaning a three down lineman, um, which is a five technique, which is means lined up directly over the tackle, and then a, a zero technique, which which means a nose, you know, lined up over the center, and then another five technique, you know, lined up over the other uh, uh, tackle. He moved those guys inboard to be four eyes, meaning in between the tackle and the guard, and shaded to the shoulder. That's what the eye means. Um, so it's a four eye o four eye. That's a that's a tight. Um, and the the point of that is that the nose tackle is two gapping, right? He controls the center and he controls both of the A gaps. And that guy needs to be really, really big, right? You know, because he's got to be able to control two gaps at once. Um, and then the 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 two ends, we call them ends because they're on the end of the line. They're built like tackles. You want those guys to be about 280 um, or so. They Their job is just to plug the B gap. Um, you know, that is the gap between the guard and the tackle. And the, the philosophy behind the tight front um, is in terms of controlling the run, it's it's a spill and kill philosophy, right? So the idea is in, you know, going up against spread offenses, which is pretty much what anybody, you know, plays anymore, uh, that you, you just won't let them have any inside runs. You know, if you control the B, the A, the other A, the other B gaps with three linemen, then all of your runs have to go through the C gap or the D gap or, or farther, you know, outside. And the idea behind a spill and kill is that the outside linebacker, the inside linebacker, the safeties, essentially all these other guys can play off a bit. Uh, they, they can play back like they're playing in the pass. And then as soon as they're confirmed that it's going to be a run, well, the running back, he can't get through the middle. It's too gummed up. Uh, so he's he's got to spill, you know, to the outside. The the, the linebackers are not immediately there to the outside. They're not there waiting for them. Um, that's sort of the trick. That That's where you're getting a little extra advantage here is the linebackers are sort of backed off to play the pass. And because the running back has to take some extra time to spill out, that gives your linebackers and safeties time to come down on that outside run. But, you know, while he's still moving east-west, you have time to come down before he turns the corner to go north south. So that you know that's the that, that's the tight front in a nutshell. Um, and then you know the 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 variation that sort of gets invented at Alabama when 
Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, who was Nick Saban's defensive coordinator in Alabama for a time, what they come up with, they they make a variation on the tight front. They wind up calling it the mint front. I'm sure this is some reference to Southern cuisine. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I actually have no idea where the where that terminology <laughs> comes from. And honestly, most college football terminology just seems like completely random and are probably named after hamburgers because these guys are inventing them at two in the morning. Uh, but anyway, um, the the uh, uh, the the variation basically has to do with where you align the OLB and the nickel, whether whether it's um, boundary field uh, 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 or whether or not you do it based on the passing strength. You know, so the uh, you know was one of the things that I actually picked up and is going to go into my theory article about the mint front is like one of the ways that you can actually. Um, you you can kind of like leverage a little something something against this defense is if you use an unbalanced formation to the boundary meaning you put like four potential receiving options so like a running back tight end two wide receivers to the boundary then the mint front's going to line up the nickel to you know the boundary and you're going to leave the field where the only people who are defending the field are an outside linebacker and the field safety. So if you can run into that big open grass, like you can get a little something that way. Um, Clemson got a couple of runs that way. Um, Anyway, uh, uh, that's sort of, you know, the basic idea that it's an evolution of uh, the tight front. I tend to I tend to like the mint a little bit better um, because I think it makes more sense to align to the passing strength because the whole point of this philosophy is the pass can kill you more than the run. In in fact, like Georgia was, you know, excellent against the run, even though they were sort of, you know, allowing isn't the right word. It's more like you only have 11 guys. You picking your defensive scheme is picking what you are going to defend the least well. And, and, you know, the, the particular thing that they defend the least well are a certain types of runs. And they've just basically made the calculation that, like, that's the, if you're going to be vulnerable to something, that's the one that can do you the least amount of damage. So that's the, the optimal way to do it. Um, I, 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 I think they're probably right, in, you know, judging the way that modern college football has gone. Um you know, I, I'm definitely much more worried about, you know, you know, lining up two tight ends to the boundary and then confusing the safety about it. You know, the, the safety linebacker exchange, I'd rather have an extra man that side. That kind of makes sense to me. But anyway, um, like that's, you know, the, the, the thing that's remarkable, you know, in my in you know my preliminary charting is that like Georgia's this was the, according to advanced statistics, this was the best defense in the history of college football. Um, it's, uh, it is largely driven by their talent in, in particular, their defensive line. It's their defensive line was just lights out, just astonishing. Nobody could stop them. And I, it's not like I want to say that the scheme didn't matter. Obviously it did. You, you put the kids in a position to succeed and like the play right. calling matters and the simulated pressures and the blitzes and, you know, when you play up and when you play back, like all of these things matter, but you're not going to get any of that done without defensive linemen who just wreck the offensive line. And that's what they were doing. And here's, here's the other, the, the thing that's sort of remarkable about this talent, it, it is very talented team. Is that like, they're not superhuman and they're not robots. They're 19 year old kids who make mistakes. Like every single play 
like I, I, I give grades to every single, you know, all, all 11 kids who are on the field. Like there, I'm hard pressed to find a single play that Georgia did in which there were all 11 kids, you know, n- no notes. Everything right. that you did was perfect. Like they're screwing up. They, mm-hmm. they screw up all the time. They're kids, you know, yep. uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's that a, the number of screw ups are fewer than other teams. B the number of screw, the, the screw ups are less impactful because they're so talented that like you can make up for it. And, and see that the scheme has sort of layers of redundancy. So like, oh, the pass rush didn't get home. Well, that's okay. The coverage will, will be good. Oh, the coverage wasn't good. Well, it didn't matter because the pass rush got home. Oh, the pass rush and the coverage, you know, had some problems. Well, they're going to tackle really effectively. You know, the linebacker is super fast and is going to get there in time, you know, to make a tackle. So they, that was only a six-yard gain. It wasn't a 60-yard gain. Um, you know, it's like, you know, these layers of redundancy, and that's what the defensive coordinator does. And that's the thing that's like w- – w- you know, the scheme is fascinating and I will put up clips of the simulated pressures and so forth. But the thing that really impressed me about Dan Leaning's defense more than anything else was just like it, it was simultaneously professional and also recognized that these kids are kids. Like it, it, there was no part of that scheme that was like, I guess this is another point that's sort of difficult to articulate. I'll do my best here that like I've watched schemes both on offense and defense where this entire thing is dependent on this kid getting that right. And if he doesn't, we're going to give up a big play or we're going to, you know, give up a sack um, if it's on the offense. Um, And I don't see that with George's defense. You know, I don't see, I see like layers in redundancy where it's like, you know, if that kid screwed up, that's fine. The linebacker will be there and he'll get him. Like it's a, you know, it's a keep the play in front of you kind of scheme. Um, And I really like that. You know, I've watched way too many schemes that are like fragile. Is that the right word? Where it's like, if it's perfect, then it's perfect. But if it's one problem, the whole thing shatters. Like this was a shatter resistant defense. And I think more than anything else that's what i appreciate it and like here's the thing that that you know to sort of back up that point is so i use a success rate based charting system um basically i chart you know every play outside of garbage time and you know the offense you know given the down and distance has to get so many yards in order to stay ahead of the sticks if they do that then they succeeded on the play if they fail to do that then that means the defense succeeded on that play makes sense right yep so um and then i just I, it is the, you know, kids arithmetic. I add up how many successful plays you had versus how many total plays you had. And I divide the former by the latter and that's your success rate. And what I, you know, basically find is, you know, after having done this for more than a decade for all different teams all around the country is that, Average teams have a 50% success rate, excluding garbage time. Garbage time is really screws this up. I can't tell you, I cannot stress enough that the biggest difference between advanced stats and raw stats and why advanced stats are valuable and raw stats are garbage is excluding garbage time because garbage time makes the stats go real wonky. Um, But so once you exclude garbage time, uh, that average teams perform at a 50% success rate and bad teams uh, get down to like 40. You know, it, they perform somewhere between 40 and 49. And good teams up to playoff caliber are between 51 and 60. Like there's the, the swing's not that big. Like 
you know, anything, anything below 40%. And it's like, you should stop playing football. This is not for you. (laughs) Um, And anything above 60% is like world historical, you know, levels like that's the swing is not that big. It's, you know, if you run 10 plays and you succeed on five of them, you did an average job. If you only succeed on four of them, you did a bad job. If you succeed on just one more than average out of 10 plays, you're going to the playoffs. Like, I'm not joking about that. 60% yeah, is playoff caliber, right? Uh, and it's just, it's one play out of 10. That's the difference. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Georgia's the, the, the greatest defense in the history of college football, right? Uh, you would expect that their defensive success rate against the pass and defensive success rate against the run would be what? In the 70s or 80s, right? What would right, you sure. guess that they are? Um, 61 Defensive rush success, 61%. Uh, Defensive pass success, 60%. Like, they're not... This isn't... These aren't superhuman athletes. And they're not guys who never make mistakes. And they're not guys who never get beat. They get beat 40% of the time. Yeah. But they win 60% of the time. And and that means that they're the greatest defense ever. What they're really good at... What I should note that they're really, really good at is limiting extra yardage. That was really the thing that was off the charts, like exceptional. So the average um, pass, uh, the, the 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 average yards gained on a pass called passing play. I know that sounded confusing. I wanted to make sure that I, I, I'm being clear here. I am including um, you called a pass and it was not completed or you took a sack or you um uh, you know, threw the ball away or you had to scramble, you know, it's yardage on passing plays, not yardage per pass. Uh, But having said that, um, they limited their opponents to only 5.77 yards per called passing play. The average that I tend to observe is more like 7.5 to eight. So that's really good. you know, they took off, you know, two full yards per, per play. Um, uh, uh, per passing play, they limited their opponents to uh, 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 the number of 15 plus yard uh, p- gains on their passing plays. They limited their opponents to only 12.5%, meaning on only one out of eight times that their opponents called a passing play, the opponent successfully gained more than 15 yards. That's their explosive play rate. Um, really good is 10%. So actually giving up 12.5, that's, that's good. 15 is average. So that's like the middle of the, the above average range, but it's not the best I've ever seen. Um, so again, these, they are not perfect. They're not machines, you know, they're just, what what a great, uh, as a coaching staff, what a great message to be able to deliver to your players is that we're, you know, I mean, I realize they probably do say things like, you know, we expect you to be perfect and we're looking at every play and we're going to do what you do basically, which is look for the mistake and how do we correct it. But the truth of it is that they don't have to be perfect. They can be, if the entire defense can operate at a 60 or 61% rate against the other offenses, they're going to win most or all of their games. Yeah, it, it's about sustainability and consistency. Yeah. You know, like uh, you know, we've all seen 
we've all seen spectacular football plays that stick in your memory for 20 years, right? Like, hell, you know, if you make a spectacular enough play, they'll play it on Austin Stadium before every single game. <laughs> right. Um, but what football is really about and winning a national championship is really about is you're going to have to play something like 800 to 1,000 snaps on each side of the ball. Um, can you play uh, at a, you know, at a good level every single play? You know, that's the trick. And that is hard, apparently. Sure. Appa- it's not like I'm a football coach, but I can tell you, apparently it's extremely hard. <laughs> Yeah. You know, well, because you know is. what? There's another football team on the other side of the ball who is also trying to succeed 60% of the time, right. you know, and forcing them, you know, that's where you see really good teams. Like you came into my building averaging a 60% success rate. And in this game, you averaged a 45% success rate. I forced you to underperform your average. That's because football is a directly competitive game. And that's what Georgia did to teams. Like, yeah fascinating um so yeah that'll be my uh you know the 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 theories and principles of the 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 mint front uh is what's gonna go up not not this week but next week um and you know it should be really fascinating i will even though i spent some time talking about oh it's just eye candy you shouldn't be that fascinated (laughs) by the simulated pressures and wacky blitzes i will definitely include plenty of video clips of the simulated pressures and wacky blitzes because hey uh you know you you deserve some candy i guess um (laughs) uh, but it will also be you know a a fairly serious-minded you know discussion of the strengths and weaknesses and you know why it was successful and how this maps onto to 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 oregon which I, I think will be pretty well. And, and I think, uh, you know, the Oregon Ducks are lucky to get Dan Lanning and, and this defensive system. Excellent. Well, I look forward to it. That sounds uh, like a real learning experience. I hope so. That's, that's why I write it. Uh, <laughs> all right. That's going to do it for this week. Uh, Storm's been great talking to you. You got any parting words for us? No, just uh, go Ducks. Uh, always a good choice. Take care, everybody. Uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>